Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 31st, 2022. Uh, yesterday on our Sunday show, uh, we had a tech discussion with my old friends Chris Schroeder, a venture capitalist, Keith Tier, the original investor in uh, TechCrunch. And we talked about Web3. No one quite knows what Web3 is, although it's divided Jack Dorsey and Mark Andreessen in Silicon Valley. They're at odds over what it means, what it should mean, who can and can't own the concept. Um, uh, Chris Schroeder wrote a couple of very interesting pieces about Web3 and crypto, the Bitcoin revolution, two pieces which are well worth reading on uh, Schroeder's Substack. One guy who knows a lot, I'm not sure about Web3, but knows a lot about crypto is my guest today on the show. He's an old friend, Albert uh, Wenger. He is a, a partner at Union Square Ventures in New York, one of the top boutique venture capitalists. And he's a man who I think understood the value of Bitcoin and blockchain well before many of us, certainly well before me, uh, back in October 30, uh, back at the end of October 2013, he wrote a very popular piece on the Union Square Ventures blog called Bitcoin as Protocol. Um, and he just wrote another update on his thinking about Web3 uh, uh, on his own blog, continuations called Web3 Wallets needed. Um, some of you will remember that Albert was on my show uh, almost exactly two years ago, February the 7th, 2020. Uh, we actually recorded the show uh, in pre-COVID Munich at the DLD conference that Albert and I always go to every year. We, haven't, we didn't go last year and we didn't go this year because it was cancelled. Uh, when Albert was on the show, he talked about a book that he was in the process of writing. It was called The World After Capital, and now we have the fruits of his labor, if that's the right way of putting it. It's called The World After Capital. It's a beautiful book. It's self-published, but it looks about as professional as anything you'll find uh, in a traditional bookstore. And I'm thrilled that Albert is joining me from his home in uh, New York City. Albert, great to be back. Two years on. Um how uh, how have you been? It's good to be back, Andrew. Um, well, you know, I've been uh, fortunate in that um, uh, this pandemic um, has been dreadful, but it has also accelerated many of the things that we had been seeing previously and that we'd also been investing in, things like remote work, things like distance learning and... Um, uh, and so it is one of those situations where uh, there's a great deal of suffering, much of which could have been avoided through a better pandemic response. Um, but we're also seeing um, bits of the future come at us faster than they did before. I sense a bit of sheepishness, Albert, about your success. Not your fault that everyone else is so dumb. Um, I'm curious in terms of this vision you have of the future. It's a very big vision. And I want to get into the details later in our conversation. But what you call the world after capital, is it, 
in a conceptual sense, similar in some ways to what people are calling Web3 and what you write about um, uh, today in your blog uh, on wallets needed if, if crypto is be- going to become a kind of universal currency? Or is Web3 just another clever marketing term that uh, actually doesn't really have any meaning? No, they're definitely very much related in, in the following sense. Uh, much of what um, my book, The World After Capital, is about is how attention is being hijacked in you know big networks like Facebook and Amazon and others who control basically very large databases and use the control of those databases to kind of influence everything that goes on. And I think a big part of the promise of Web3 is that we can have databases but in a way where they own by all the contributors, all the participants, as opposed to being owned by one and controlled by one corporation. That's the big promise. That's why people should care about Web3, whether or not Web3 can succeed. I know you you write in, in some detail in the book and, and you're very passionate about this idea of attention economics. Um, the world after capital and I guess Web3 potentially liberates us from attention economics, does it? It well, makes uh, uh, attention abundant. Well, I think that the overall goal is to free up human attention. So a lot of human attention today is caught in what I call the job loop in the book. You know, people have to work to be able to live. And then a big part of what we're being told we should be doing with the money that we earn is we should be spending it on consumption. And so we're in the cycle of you know, working, earning a wage, and then spending it on stuff. And that stuff is, or services are also being made by people earning a wage. And a lot of our attention is in that. And that was a very actually beneficial loop, right? I mean, this brought us a lot of innovation when coupled with kind of entrepreneurship, when coupled with markets. Uh, So this was a good thing. But ultimately, there are things that this particular loop can't address. And they're very important things, right? So we just talked about the pandemic and we clearly were unprepared for the pandemic which is bad because we knew such a pandemic was coming right so we had two warning shots basically we had SARS and we had MERS uh, 20 years before um, COVID and 10 years before COVID so we knew that coronaviruses were kind of a dangerous virus and yet globally we weren't paying nearly enough attention to it we weren't preparing for it And so, yes, this is all about how can we free up attention that's currently stuck in this job loop and how can we free it up to be over here? And Web3 is a part of that. It's not the whole kit and caboodle and many other things, but it is one part of it. And it's an important part because right now, Facebook and Twitter and other these systems, the only way they become more valuable, the only way they make money is by hogging more of your attention, um, not by helping you think about big problems or address big issues and they could also be just big issues in your life right you know like your family for example the the debate as i mentioned between jack dorsey of course many people will associate him uh with twitter he's no longer there he was the ceo now he um he's the ceo of block a a crypto platform well he, he was the ceo of both for a long time yeah he was the ceo for both and you were an investor in twitter even though you seem to disapprove in some way of, of, of their, their business or their business model. Mark, well, well, recently- I think, can, can I jump in there for a second? I think yeah. one of the things we've learned, we were investors in Twitter and Tumblr and many other things. One of the things we've learned is that when you have an ad-based business model, there's a fundamental um, problem in where that's going to lead you. 
And so subsequently, we have been investing much more in consumer subscription businesses. Because in a consumer subscription business where the consumer pays you, your incentives are aligned. Here in the ad model, your incentives are capture as much attention and then sell it off. And often capturing attention means that you present viewers with ever more sort of um, problematic content. And we see the algorithms, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, YouTube algorithms, optimizing for that all the time. So we, yes, we made that investment, but we learned something from it and we have changed the kind of things we've been looking for. But doesn't as, that as mean, Albert, in an odd way that you've returned to Web 1.0? Because subscriptions, paying for the New York Times, paying for the Wall Street Journal, paying for the Financial Times, I pay happily for all those. Uh, but basically, I've just replaced my physical subscription of a newspaper with a digital subscription. There's nothing very revolutionary about that, is there? Well, I think I would argue it's a, it's it's it can be quite revolutionary, right? So, um, not in the subscription examples that you gave, but if you think now about Web three, which we were just talking about, if you were a holder of tokens in a network, and um, one way that you you know um, basically get paid for contributions in this network if you make contributions is through tokens, but also you're maybe staking your tokens, for example, to say, actually, I really believe this claim that I just made. And then if it turns out to be wrong, you know, your tokens get slashed. So I think there's many new ways that we can have a model. I was giving subscriptions as an example where we went, but where we've really been investing more recently is all these token-based systems. And that's because I think they offer uh, a new native alternative um, that doesn't have this kind of, I think, built-in conflict um, between the sort of system operator and the actual system participants. Albert, our audience is more literary and historical and philosophical than technological. You talk about this thing you call a token. How is a token different from a coin, a, a, a physical example of sure. money, whether it's a coin or a banknote? Yeah. Are we more sort of leveraged with tokens? Uh, we, we, we can't separate ourselves from tokens like we can separate ourselves from money, can we? I'm not sure I understand what you mean we can't separate ourselves from. Um, well, they're part of us, the token. Uh, you're, you're saying, so for example, you're, you're suggesting with a, a social media platform built around tokens, if you're distributing lies or fake news or propaganda, were you suggesting one way to punish you would be to take away your token? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, there are you know people working on just such systems at the moment, and which make a lot of sense, which are pretty but, interesting to me. So, I, I I believe we're still early, very much early in Web three. Uh, we're always uh, early, Albert, until we're too late, because it's guys like you who are so smart that you <laughs> you always well, say it's early well, until you buy up the market, and then it's too late for the rest of us. When I say we, um, I mean globally i mean humanity i think it's it's early in these systems these systems are difficult to build I, I think you know the thing to realize is that um when tim berners lee published the http specification which the web runs on he published yeah. that in like 1990 to to like 92 basically um it was a very easy to implement protocol uh and the reason it was easy to implement was because it didn't have any notion of data or storage or history and so it just was a notion of you make a request to a resource, the resource returns you some stuff, normally HTML. Uh, and that gave us permissionless publishing. Anybody could put up a web page and anybody could go read that web page. All you needed was a web browser 
and then you know the person putting up the web page needs a web server. And, and to was- remind ourselves, uh, Mark Andreessen, the other guy in the the Web three spot, he was the founder and visionary of the first really effective web browser, which was Netscape. So absolutely, and that's an important bit of history because we're going to get to another part that Mark um, invented, which was the cookie. So um, because the web protocol didn't have a sense of um, memory built into it. Even something as trivial as trying to do a shopping cart was really hard. Like you want to put one item in the shopping cart and then you want to put a second item in it. But if the protocol has no sense of data storage or history, how do you do that? And so Mark and his team came up with a cookie and the cookie are these little files that you send along with a request and then the server can write some stuff into it and next request you send them again. And so you see how you can use that to implement a shopping cart. But what really wound up happening, if you were to look at your cookie files today, your cookie files generally just in, include your user ID and all the stuff like your shopping cart and everything else is stored on the server. And so while we started out with permissionless publishing and there were millions of individual websites, we wound up getting into this re-centralization of the web through databases. So if you think, what is Twitter? It's, it's a database of people's profiles, the followers, and the status updates, right? Mm. And what's Facebook? It's our profiles, our friend graphs, and our status updates. Uh, what's Amazon? It's SKUs, um, items, it's payment credentials and purchase histories. Uh, you know, at the heart of every big web company today is a database. And they, the company, meaning let's say Amazon, sees the entire database and you just see little bits and bobs of it, right? Whatever view they want to make available to you, that's the view you get. But only Amazon has the entire database. Only Facebook has the entire database. And the big problem is the big dream of Web3 is that we can have these kind of databases and they'll be permissionless also, meaning people can write to them and read from them um, in you know, ways that are somewhat controlled, but they're not controlled by somebody operating and owning the database. They're controlled by the rules of the protocol. And that's what, and you've done a beautiful job, Albert, as always, explaining this stuff, because most people can't, um, or they don't see it as clearly as you. You have the distance and the historical uh, vision and the technological ability. Is this what you're talking about when... Um, you say Web three needs a similar moment to the, uh, the 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 invention of the browser in Web one o with uh, with Andreessen, and that what we need need a sort of a protocol or a blockchain where everyone has the same power and everyone sees the same thing. We have a lot of good blockchains, and there's been a ton of innovation. I mean, the first working thing was Bitcoin, and then and, you know we have Ethereum, and we have lots of others now. Um, you know, Algorand, um, Solana, and Avalanche, and many others. Um, so we have working chains. Uh, the thing is that in order to really interact with those chains, you need a wallet, a crypto wallet. And we have this chicken and egg problem where, you know, if I want to build a decentralized app, let's say I want to build a decentralized Twitter, that's great. But anybody who wants to use it needs to have a wallet installed already. And this is a lot like the early web. You know, it, it was great. I could publish a website easily, but the only way you could get to it is by having a web browser. Right. So and this is the brilliant way of putting it. Have browsers. Yeah. So so we're at this point, Albert, where we need a wallet. Um, yes. Now, lots of companies from Facebook to PayPal to Coinbase, this is the holy grail for all tech companies, I mean, including, you know, as I said, Coinbase, you're an investor in. What is to stop? Um, the next Coinbase or PayPal or Facebook or Google or Apple, what is to stop them owning the wallet 
and becoming an even more dominant power in the Web 3.0 age? Oh, no, it's a great question. Um, you can switch from one browser to the next and it's, it's zero effort, right? Um, I mean, I have three browsers on my uh, laptop. You know, I use Safari, I use Chrome. Yeah, but you never Firefox. do. I'm, we're all on Chrome. Oh, no, I, 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 it's, just, it's habitual, right? You I, just stay on one. Yeah, but, uh, but, but it doesn't contain anything, right? The browser doesn't, all the knowledge that's in the website and same with the crypto wallet. You know, all the stuff that matters, it's on chain. So you could switch from one crypto wallet to another. So the browser really doesn't have any power. I mean, people try to bake stuff into the browser all the time, but it's turned out not to be very effective. And and I do switch browsers all the time um, because, you know, I find it easier and I find... So are you saying that the wallet will be universal and everyone will own it? It will be sort of like a meta cryptocurrency? No, it's 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 that the, the wallet interacts with a chain and everything that's relevant is stored on chain. Nothing that's relevant is stored in the wallet. So, you know, I mean, yes, your private keys are presumably stored in the wallet, but you can easily transfer those from one wallet to another wallet. So my point is that much like the browser never held any real power in the web world, um, you know, the and, and it's been very competitive. I mean, just think about it. Netscape came out, then Internet Explorer blew away Netscape. Today, hardly anybody uses Internet Explorer because Chrome came along, and then people who are on Apple use a lot of Safari. So, you know, and there's a new sort of browser called Brave that's been growing a lot. So uh, I think the browser is a great example that when you have open technology, then you can't easily put a choke point on it. It's the choke point sits on the data site. And once you have permissionless data, that choke point goes away. Am I certain that there will not be some other choke point in the future? No. I mean, you know, who knows? But the obvious yeah. choke point, the obvious current choke point, which is the database, that's what we got to crack. And I can already tell you that the wallet is not going to be choke point because the browser wasn't the choke point. It can't be the choke point. And the same goes for the wallet. The wallet is not going to be the choke point. But you say in your piece that... Um... Uh, on the on the wallet. So if someone at Google is paying attention, include a multi-currency wallet in Android Pronto and watch Apple squirm. This is just great power politics. It's <laughs> it's China or America versus Russia. I mean, who well, cares whether Apple or Google or Amazon win here? Well, look, here's here's why I wrote this. I wrote it because Apple has been very anti-crypto. Uh, and I think it's kind of, you know, illustrates in my mind that Apple's whole stance on privacy is kind of a big marketing ploy, right? I mean, Apple says privacy, privacy, privacy. I would believe it if they replace Chrome as the default browser and, you know, that would cost them about a billion dollars a month to do so. So, um, you know, so far they haven't shown that. Also, pretty much they comply with anything that China asks them to do. So I don't think they really actually care about privacy. And if they really cared about privacy, they would be supporting crypto, including, you know, privacy tokens like Zcash and Monero, but they're not. Well, if, uh, if Tim Cook is watching, I know he's a ro- regular viewer of the show. Listen to Albert. Albert's always right. And Albert is certainly right in his description of the world after capital, his wonderful new book. Uh, we're going to take a short break, Albert, now. And then afterwards, I want to get into the, the weeds of your vision of what uh, the world after capital looks like. So hold tight, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many 
different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. I am speaking with Albert uh, Wenger, the author, old friend, the author of uh, The World After Capital, wonderful new book, uh, beautifully, um, beautifully written and beautifully produced. It's just out physically. I'm going to get into the details, Albert. You talk in the book about there being three core areas, um, which you should say, we, you talk about smoothing the transition to the knowledge age, economic freedom, informational freedom, and psychological freedom. Perhaps you can briefly go over each of these and explain why they are all, each of them so important. Yeah, so the basic thesis of the book is that we're facing this transition. We had built a system, um, the industrial age system, that was uh, about producing physical capital, you know, getting machines built, factories, railroads, all of those things. Uh, and that was a system that worked very well. We now have a lot, a lot of physical capital. We can build lots of new things very quickly. And so the real constraint that we're facing today is attention. Like, what is it that we are paying attention to both collectively as humanity, as societies, and individually in our lives? And so these three freedoms, increasing these freedoms is basically around freeing up attention. Um, and economic freedom for me is synonymous with some form of universal basic income, basically making it so that people don't have to work just to live. Uh, and this is a policy that I've written about for a decade plus. Uh, and uh, and um, you put your own money on the line here. I know you yeah. started some schemes. We had, um, we had a guy, I know you know Scott Santon's on the show. Sure. He's also dedicating his life to universal basic income. You're also an early supporter um, of Jerry Yang, who was running for a president. A Andrew um, Yang. Uh, sorry, yeah. Whoops, that was a Freudian error. Not Jerry Yang, Andrew Yang. He seems to have sort of disappeared a bit, but he was, again, a, a visionary and a, and a, and a prophet of uh, universal basic income. What's the big deal about this, um, Albert? Why is, it, why, why, why is it the core of um, what you call economic freedom? Well, because 
basically, if you go back in sort of history of the U.S., you know, um, early on people moved here because there was land, importantly land we were taking away from uh, Native Americans, but there was land and people could farm and they could be truly free in the sense that they didn't have uh, a kind of a king above them. Well, okay, originally still the king of England, but that problem got solved a little while later, right? So, um, but people were free in a very meaningful way. And interestingly enough, even all the way back then, you know, some of the writers and thinkers were like, well, gee, we're going to run our land at some point and what are we going to do then? Um, and it kind of shows how forward thinking some of those people were. Uh, and so they... Uh, although that, uh, some people would say, Albert, that they took that land from someone else. And uh, Oh, I uh, said that. I said know. it very... I said it. I said it right now. I just said it. <laughs> yes, yeah, they did. Um, my, my point is, um, n no less, they were thinking about what can we do once we run out of land, right? Um, and so even back then, um, one of the ideas was, well, we could just give people money. And if people don't absolutely have to work, people have a lot more power. Right, they have power over how to allocate their time. A lot of people in the U.S. today work two, sometimes three jobs. Often they work jobs where they don't allocate their time, but basically, the computer says show up at this Starbucks at this time. If you don't show up, you're fired. Right, uh, and so I think that one of the reasons universal basic income is powerful is because it frees people up, frees people up, for instance, to engage in politics, um, local politics or national politics, for that matter. Frees people up to take care of family. I mean, this is one of the things that basic income trials find, basic income pilots find time after time, like one of the ways that people don't stop working, but they look for better jobs. They look for not necessarily higher paying jobs, but jobs with more flexibility, better benefits and so forth. And they also spent more time on things that matter to them, like family, for example. So I think this is a really foundational concept and it has a long history, long intellectual history. And for the first time, really, I think we are technologically in a place where we can totally afford this as a society. So it's something we can and we should do. And in part, we should do it because we want to be able to embrace automation and not fear it, right? So automation has been very good to us. Um, you know, most people used to work in agriculture because it was so labor intensive. And now we have big machines like combines and others that make it so that, you know, only about 3% of the population work in agriculture feeding everybody else. So I think we want to be able to embrace automation. We want its benefits, but we want these benefits to be widely distributed in society as opposed to accruing to a few people who own robot building factories. Are you encouraged by, in COVID, it seems to be a, a cultural reaction against work. Do you think that that is a long lasting legacy of COVID or is this something that will go away quite quickly as we hopefully get back to normal? No, I sure hope so. I mean, I think, you know, um, human purpose isn't to work a, the kind of job that most people work, right? I mean, there's a big confusion because a lot of people say, well, what about, you know, work giving you purpose? Like, absolutely, people need purpose in life. But like a lot of jobs, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue that they provide a good sense of purpose, right? Well, that's so, for sure. So I a lot of people will be watching this and saying, <laughs> oh, Albert, how are we going to pay for this? I asked you this last time. I Later this week on Friday, I've got um, uh, uh, Christopher Leonard, an uh, award-winning journalist, uh, The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. I think this kind of argument is one you're probably fairly sympathetic to. Very my much so. Very much My so. understanding I, 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 I is that you think that government policy can, can make finance more just so that 
if not, they won't necessarily be free money, but the easy money that the Fed's managed and has benefited the wealthy will change so that everyone will be empowered. Yeah, and, and frankly, this is how we should have been doing quantitative easing, right? So quantitative easing is where the Fed creates a lot of money, but the Fed creates the money and gives it to the banks. And who do the banks give it to? They give it to the wealthy people. Like I, who am wealthy, have no trouble getting like a third mortgage or a fourth mortgage. But there are lots of people who don't have access to their first home, who are home out on the street or who are you know, having severe trouble making rent. So and the, the irony is that this effect of making money this way and giving it to the banks, the fact that this has a distributional effect, it's been known since Cantillon. Cantillon wrote about this in like the 1700s. So like this isn't like some new idea. This has been well known and yet we keep making the same mistake and then we wonder why we have such income and wealth distribution problems. What about informational freedom? We touched on that this, I think, with the web and yeah, social I mean, media, but what does it actually mean? Well, among other things, you know, I'm gonna come back to Tim Cook again. Among other things, it means I should be able to run any software I want on this phone, right? The idea that the only way I can get software on there is through some app store, and that there's only one app store on my phone and I can't replace it with a different app store, that just fundamentally broke it. I mean, I've paid for the phone, I pay for the you know, data plan, I pay for the power to charge it. It's my phone. Let me run whatever software I want on it. But Tim might say, well, you didn't have to buy an Apple phone. You could have bought a Google phone. An Android well, is absolutely. slightly which, more by open. The way, which, by the way, is exactly what this is. This is an Android phone because I could sideload software. You sent me an APK. That's the technical term for an application file. And I can install it and run it. That's why I wouldn't be caught dead with an iPhone. But what, I, I, I understand economic freedom. I understand UBI. Why is informational freedom one of the three tenets, one of the three cores in your vision of the future? Because we live in a world um, that's dominated by all things digital. And digital, um, this is part of the beginning of the book, has these extraordinary properties. Um, you know, it has zero marginal cost. It has what I call universality of computation, which means that computer code, you know, your phone, one minute can give you directions, the next minute it can, you know, analyze your blood pressure, for example, right? So it can do all these different things just by switching out the code. And so who controls computation is a fundamental question of freedom. And so we should not live in a world, we should not accept living in a world where very few large corporations control almost all the data, that's what we were talking about earlier, and where very few other companies control all the computation and who gets to compute what? You know, Apple and Google to a lesser degree, have repeatedly rejected a number of different crypto wallets because they had functionality built into the crypto wallet that was App Store-like. And they were like, no, you can't have that. And if you look, I mean, not that we should be trying to get a lot of lessons from China, but China actually has many more competing app stores. And you know, um, many of the Chinese messengers or the dominant Chinese messenger has way more functionality built into it as a result. So yes, these things have very clear costs in terms of innovation. And I simply think that if we look at the history post-World War II, we look at capital formation, we know that when you have central authorities that make decisions about what type of innovation gets approved and what doesn't, bad things tend to happen. So yes, I think we need to, it's essential for a transition that we have a lot of informational freedom, which means we, as individuals and then as the kind of groups that individuals form communities that we have more power over computation and over information how does politics play in this you brought up uh, china china is in a political sense the apple uh, 
at least in China. You can't do anything in China without the approval of the government. In America, the government seems at best sclerotic, at worst just non-existent. Um, is politics the fix here? What, what, uh, when it comes to these th- three kinds of freedoms, do we need more or less politics, Albert? Well, I, I think, you know, um, when it comes to regulation, we need the right kind of regulation. And unfortunately, we tend to be getting the wrong kind of regulation. So to me, the canonical example of this is the automobile, right? So when you had early automobiles, a lot of the earliest regulation was like, okay, these things are dangerous. You know, they can't go faster than a horse-drawn carriage. Somebody's still got to walk in front of them waving a red flag. I mean, these are all actual laws that were passed. And that was examples of bad regulation. But ultimately, we didn't get the benefits of the automobile until we got good regulation and good government action. That government saying, hey, we should build an interstate highway system. Hey, we should have some rules of the road. Like everybody should agree to drive on the left or on the right, you know, because that's something that is good if government decides as opposed to people try to figure out every day when they get in their car. And so I think in some ways we need less regulation, right? Because we have a lot of cruft. Our securities laws are from the 1930s. They were written long before such a thing as the internet ever existed. And yet, you know, they're being applied as if the internet didn't exist. And so we have a lot of cruft that we need to get rid of. Um, But then we need some regulation. Um, I'm not a libertarian at all. I think the idea that you can do with no regulation, I think is silly. But I think we could do with a lot less and we could do with regulation that was more native to the capabilities that we have today, as opposed to taking stuff that's absolutely ancient and sort of saying, yeah, that's really kind of terrible, but we have no way of getting rid of it. So all we're going to do is just put more stuff on top of it, which is really what we've been doing, which is frankly why I think a lot of people are fed up with it. Albert, politics seems, or at least the politics of democracy, democratic system seems to be in crisis, similar kind of crisis to media and industry, all the things that you've, you've, you've had a front row on. How does the architecture of Web3, the world after capital, without a heart, this peer-to-peer architecture, how could it change the very rule and nature of politics itself? Well, first of all, I do think that it's incredibly important that we try and preserve whatever bit of democracy we have left, and in fact, then try to get back to a, a better functioning democracy. And I think that's going to be tough. Uh, again, it's going to be tough largely because we've been unwilling to make reforms. And so the cruft has been sort of gathering up in the system and the system becomes ever less functional. Um, and by the way, I am not at all a Web3 Pollyanna. I'm not somebody who's like, oh, Web3 is going to solve all problems. No, it's not. It's going to introduce its own set of problems. Right. Uh, you know, And um, we have to see everything in this context. I, I gave um, two talks at the Blockstack conferences, one out on the West Coast, one in Berlin, that are on YouTube that people can watch, where I distinctly talk about, okay, here is why these capabilities matter, but here is some of the problems that they're going to bring with them. Mm-hmm. So there's no sense in which, oh, you know, just make it put it, just put it on the blockchain, all will be fine. No, it won't. It'll have its own set of problems that we need to be cognizant of and that we need to address. And so I think. You know, this brings me to an important point that we haven't talked about yet, which is sort of this point about psychological freedom. Right, which I um, want to come to. But but but, but before so, we get there, there are some libertarians, you said you're not a libertarian, anarchist, people who believe that the architecture of Web3 can finally do away with power. Is that utopian, absurd? Well, no, I, I do think that, you know, we talked earlier, you mentioned the guest you're going to have on the show later, who's talking about central banks and so forth. I do, Bannon, think, 
I, I do believe that you know um, they the mere existence of Bitcoin provides some degree of check and balance on the power of uh, Federal Reserves, um, the Federal Reserve and other central banks. And I think that's a good thing. I think checking the power of government is a good thing. Uh, a government that's too powerful is very dangerous um, for the very people it's meant to serve. So I do think having this check of Web3 is important. I'm just arguing that the counterpoint, which is that Web3 is going to solve all problems, is, is equally, in a way, uh, Pollyannish. What so. about then psychological freedom, your third freedom, perhaps of all the three, the most, I get the sense, the one that you consider the most important? Or at well, least the other two enable the third. Is that fair? Well, actually, all three mutually reinforce each other. That's why I picked them. Um, the, the reason why I like psychological freedom is because it's a place where each and every one of us can get started um, individually. And, you know, if I uh, were to able send myself, my younger self, a letter, um, let's say my, you know, 20-year-old self, I would say, develop a mindfulness practice step. And um, obviously, it's a word that's much bandied about these days, but there's something incredibly, extraordinarily powerful if you can avoid being hijacked by your emotions, right? If you can experience your emotions, whether it's anger, sadness, um, euphoria, when you can experience it, enjoy it, but not be hijacked by it, right? And all you have to do is look around Twitter um, or look around any television and you see all these people who can't see the other person, can't hear a thing the other person is saying. Um, they're just full of rage. They're just full of anxiety. Uh, and they have lost all access to what makes us ultimately human, which is our ability to think rational. I mean, the emotions we share with animals. We had a couple of philosophers from Notre Dame on the show recently, Megan Sullivan and Paul Blaschko. Um, uh, they've written a book on the search for meaning. Their argument is that this is best achieved through the reading of philosophy. Are texts and books important here? I know you're a big uh, book fan. In fact, you even, um, with your wife, Suzanne, you started a, uh, a business called um, Daily Lit, Five Minutes of Fiction Every Day. Um, how central can books or should books be in psychological freedom? Uh, very central. I think books are one of the great accomplishments of humanity. Um, you know, I can read a book today that's 100 years ago in a different part of the world, a thousand years ago in a different part of the world. Um, some of the books we are writing today can be read, you know, a thousand years from now, hopefully. Um, and they are a way of transmitting knowledge through time and space, and they're extraordinarily powerful. Uh, again, you have to free up your attention to be able to enjoy them. Uh, the number of people actually still reading books is declining precipitously because it's being substituted by, you know, doom scrolling on Twitter um, or spending hours on TikTok. Would it be fair to say, Albert, that uh, The World Without Capital, your book, your physical book, and it's also been published online, which is about economic, informational, and psychological freedom, it also is an example of something that can be produced with those three freedoms? Yes, very much so. I, I, I believe that um, from the, one of the great potential sources of meaning in everybody's life is to contribute to knowledge. And I think of knowledge here quite broadly, not just scientific knowledge, but also philosophy, but also art, music. They're all forms of knowledge. Knowledge is things that we kind of do and then share with each other. 
uh, you know, in a purposeful fashion and often in a recorded fashion that can transcend time and space. And that is totally unique as a species. Um, you know, I love dogs, I love whales, but none of them, you know, record music. Um, whales make beautiful music, but it's highly ephemeral because they have no way of storing it. And as a result, it gets lost. So I believe that, you know, a very powerful source of meaning in people's lives is to contribute to knowledge in some form. Uh, but you're originally from Germany. When I listen to you, there's definitely echoes of the young Marx in German ideology, the idea of technology freeing us to fish in the morning and write poetry in the afternoon. Is what you're saying in the world after capital that different from Marx's ideal of a post-industrial utopia? No, I think Marx was actually a very um, forward-looking thinker. I think he just was writing very early in this, and I think he had some you know, ideas that didn't quite pan out about you know, the relationship between labor and capital. Um, uh, and in part, I think, you know, because time and time again, we tend to underestimate the power of innovation. I mean, I also talk about Malthus and the Malthusian fear, uh, and a lot of this uh, gets subverted because technology turns out to be more rather than less powerful than people think it will be. And ultimately, technology is just the embodiment of knowledge. So the true power lies with knowledge. That is really why humans are at the center of the earth. Whether you like it or not, it's all not because we're stronger, quicker, faster. We can't even fly. We can't swim underwater. We need technological devices to do so, and they're made possible by knowledge. So knowledge is the central human project. And I think with knowledge comes responsibility. It's we who are responsible for the whales, not the whales for us, right? So if we let the whales go extinct, that's on us. Yeah, and the implications on the environment, your, your book deals with that. We, we don't really have time to get into it, but it's another important piece. Uh, thinking about the title of your book, The World After Capital, in a sense, it's the world after Marxist capital, after uh, Marx's great book on the fetishization of money, your vision of capital is 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 the Web 3.0 or the world of crypto. So it's kind of interesting. Wonderful there, book, wonderful conversation, reason. Albert. I love having you on the show because it forces <laughs> me to think. I don't usually think very hard. Uh, people really need to pick this book up. It's short. It's smart. It's relevant. It's written by one of the top VCs in the world who's also highly well-read and articulate. Congratulations, uh, Albert, on the book. Uh, in addition to your new book, The World After Capital, what else should people be reading? You're a big fan of books on these these texts where we impart wisdom from one generation to another. Yeah, I'm a big fan of David Deutsch's book, The Beginning of Infinity, which is, I think, one of the most lucid books about knowledge, where knowledge comes from, how we can develop knowledge further, and how powerful knowledge is. I'm going to get that book. I'm actually, is he still alive? I try and get him on the show. He is. He is at Oxford, and uh, Susan and I are actually funding some of the research that he's working on together with a wonderful young woman named Chiara Maletto called Constructor Theory. And Chiara yeah. has a great book also. You should have her on. Well, you've led into that one, Albert. Now I'm going to pester you to get introductions. But uh, as always, honor to have you on the show, Albert. Congratulations on the new book. And we last talked two years ago. I hope it won't be another two years before you come back on the show. So we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much, Albert. Sounds like a plan. The author of World After Capital. Good to see you.